a reading from 2 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 5. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. This is the word of the Lord. In the name of Jesus, the Sistine Chapel in Vatican City is in itself a spectacular piece of Renaissance artwork. The walls and the ceiling are covered in frescoes painted by Michelangelo. And yes, I had to look up what the word frescoes means. And I'll tell you what it is, and then you can nod as if you knew all along. A fresco is a method of painting where the, the painter paints directly onto freshly layered plaster so that as it dries and hardens, the painting becomes a permanent part of the structure, which actually makes sense because as you look at pictures of all the tourists packed into the Sistine Chapel looking up at the ceiling, you get the sense that maybe they wish that they would bring some of those down so they could see them a little bit better. And just to give you a, a sense of the scope of, of the room in the Sistine Chapel, um, near as I can figure, it's about the same width, but it's about twice as long as our sanctuary, and the ceiling is roughly 20 feet higher. And if you stand sort of in the center and you look straight up, you'll see what is arguably one of the most famous paintings in the world, the creation of Adam. So to fit it onto our screen, we have to actually shrink it down because it's about 18 feet wide. So this is about two-thirds actual size, and our ceiling is about two-thirds the height of the Sistine Chapel ceiling. So if you can imagine this image straight up, you might get a sense of the level of detail you'd be able to see. And as I have spent this last week considering this painting and just poring over the details of it, I think I've come to the conclusion I might never have actually looked at it before because there's so much detail in it that, that I have missed. So this is a depiction of the moment in between God's formation of man from the dust of the earth and the moment right after when God breathes life into him. So on the left, we've got Adam 
This is before God breathed life into him. And you can see him. He's just kind of sitting there. He is limp. Uh, his eyes are kind of dull. His, his hand is sort of just hanging there. But God, God, there is, there's a great sense of motion. Look, his, his hair and his beard are trailing behind him and, his, and the robes too. Uh, he's surrounded by angels. He's got Eve in his arms, a future gift for Adam that he doesn't even know about. Some people even think that in the shape of the robe surrounding God that they can see the, the cross-section of a human brain. I'm not sure about that, but, but then if you look closely and when we zoom in, this is the detail that makes me realize I don't think I ever really looked at this before. I always thought the fingers were touching. But you can very clearly see there's a gap. And as you stand there in the, in the center of the Sistine Chapel looking up, you can stare at it for as long as you want, and those fingers are never going to touch. And it tells me that more than a sense of eagerness, more than a sense of hurry, this painting conveys a sense of anticipation and waiting. This is just a snapshot. And this is just one moment, the moment before it all happens. So there's a gap. A gap between God and man as, as we anticipate his coming and the gifts that he'll bring. And eventually we have to look away. We have to shift our focus away from, from the painting. Even if you were there, you can't stay forever. And you shift your focus back into this world on the people and the day to day grind and, and the suffering and the sin. And, and I tell you, the gap actually appears to be much larger than that. Because the gap between God and mankind, the one that first appeared when Adam and Eve drew back from God, when they pulled away from him, when they, when they turned their backs on him, it's only gotten wider. I don't think I probably need to work real hard to convince you of that. Did you know that it's going to be a record year for school shootings? 47 and counting. And did you know that there are 34 million people in this country alone who, who don't have uh, sufficient access to healthy food? Nine million of them are children. And I'm not talking about a gap that we only see out there in the world. If you get in your car and you drive 15 minutes, you can be at the spot where just last Friday night a postal worker was shot and killed right here in Milwaukee while he was delivering the mail. Now, if we stare at the gap for too long, instead of the neck ache you'll get staring at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, you're going to get a heartache to see how far this world has fallen from God's touch, how far it has fallen from his grace, especially as we realize that every act of violence, every bit of indifference towards suffering and poverty and hunger Every hateful word spoken all has its root in the very same sin that calls my heart home. It's why Paul's words in 2 Corinthians really seem so strange. So Paul is referring back to, at the end of our reading to the book of Isaiah, where the Lord is speaking to his suffering servant, the promised Messiah, and, the, and he's been suffering so much rejection that we might actually begin to think that he's not accomplishing anything at all. But here's what God says to him. In the time of my favor, 
I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. And sometimes in Old Testament prophecies, we see events foretold, events that are, that are spoken of with such certainty that they're actually put in the past tense because they may as well be in the past because if God says it's going to happen, it's absolutely certain that it's going to happen. That's not what Paul's doing, though, when he quotes it. Paul is speaking very literally when he says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And Paul had a history in the city of Corinth that really forced us to ask the question, what's, what's he talking about and why is he saying this to them? So he'd been a missionary there for about a year and a half. He had gathered the church. He had established the congregation. He had instructed them in the use of their spiritual gifts and counseled them regarding their use of the Lord's Supper. He confronted them in their sin and he reminded them that they were still saints. Everything he did, everything he said just dripped with love, showed how much he cared about them. But then, even after he had brought them through so much, a new mess came up in the church. That's at least part of the reason why he wrote this letter to them that we call 2 Corinthians. So he'd been away for some time and some new preachers had moved in. Preachers that apparently were better speakers than Paul. They were more eloquent. Uh, they had more impressive credentials and they were so good, in fact, that they charged a fee as opposed to this Paul fellow who just preached for free. And they claimed to have seen visions and to, have, and to be able to speak with special authority on matters of God. But they were liars. And they were false prophets. And they were actually leading some of the members of this church astray, leading them to wonder why they needed this Paul guy and why they needed the gospel that he preached. And Paul could sense a widening gap between these people, this congregation that he loved so well, and the God that loved them even more. And you think of all the ways that Paul could have approached a letter to them, a letter to deal with that problem. As an apostle of Christ, as the founder of their congregation, as their pastor, as the one who had brought them the gospel, who had ushered them into the faith. Think of the connections he had with them and the authority that he still wielded. He could have reminded them about how much he had done for them, how much he had suffered for them. He could have ordered them to kick those new preachers to the curb. He might have even laid a guilt trip on them about how much it hurt him that they had dismissed him so quickly. But we don't get any of that. Instead, Paul turns to Christ. He says, for Christ's love compels us. Not Paul's love. Not Paul's authority. Not Paul's vision or Paul's leadership. Christ's love. A love that Paul had written about in his previous letter to them. A love that gives everything, that bears everything, that loses everything so that everyone, as he says in this book, so that everyone might become a new creation by God. And this is how he says it here. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. See, Paul reminds them of who they already are. And in this letter, written to a congregation almost 2,000 years ago and over 5,000 miles away, we find words that are meant also for us. 
Because he says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Well, we're in Christ. That's us. And so if anyone here has ever had days when you don't feel like a new creation, where instead of feeling a sense of anticipation of God's coming and a nearness of God, if you've ever felt that way and instead felt a stronger sense of the gap between mankind and God, then maybe it's worth asking, what does it actually mean to be in Christ? I'm going to put it for you as simply as I can. It means that you have died. That was the first verse of our reading where Paul talks about what happened at the cross. One died for all, and therefore all died. The punishment for sin, the end result of this ever-widening gap between God and humanity is death. And God considers you now to have paid that penalty in full. And you didn't feel that, did you? Because there was a substitution. The Son of God volunteered to take the place of every sinner. He suffered death and experienced all of its agony and terror, including being cut off from the Father. And because Jesus was our substitute, his death with all its pain is credited to us, to sinners. Now we have been given the status of saint, and it's not because of anything we did or anything we could have done. Paul says, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul doesn't focus on the gap. He focuses on the connection. He focuses on the day when God became man, the day when the hand of a man, the hand of a human, was the hand of God. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, that God didn't simply stand outside of our world and wait for us to stop sinning and to come back to him. He actually came into this world. He took on flesh to be the one who could save us, the only human who could do it. And he did it not by pointing us in the right direction or by giving us good advice. He actually opened the way. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The hand of Jesus is the hand of God, collecting up all of our sin, gathering it together to himself, and being nailed with it and by it to the cross. He took God's wrath and our just punishment on himself, and then by that act he reconciled us to the Father. And then Paul further explains how this actually brings us to be in Christ in Romans 6. He says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life new life, a new creation. So why then does this creation so often remind us of death? Well, the reason things don't 
seem different. The reason we don't feel different is because as long as we live in this fallen world, we have a fallen nature. If you were here last week, you heard the Old Testament book of Zephaniah. He gave us that image of the day of the Lord when when the Lord would take a lamp and search for sinners late into the night to make sure not one of them escaped judgment. It's really a terrifying thought. But not for us. Because for those of us who are baptized into Christ, we have nothing to fear. Because God now looks at us through Christ. His all-seeing eye searches us and finds no sin. And he declares us righteous. So this is what it means to be God's new creation. That even after coming to faith, we still look like the same people, but God counts us as having died which means we have nothing left to fear. We are baptized into Christ. So we have already gotten death out of the way. Death is in the past for us. And that means we are now living a borrowed life, sharing the life of the one who lived and died and was raised again. And that means that for us, it's nothing but life from here on out because the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. The Sistine Chapel ceiling shows an image of God's first creation. It's, it's beautiful and it's complex and it's moving, but I'm pretty sure most of us are never going to see it because in addition to being 68 feet off the ground, it's also several thousand miles away. But what God accomplishes here among us and in us is actually far more wonderful. And he does it right here in our presence after thousands of years of God's promises stretching all the way back to the Garden of Eden, we look back and we see them all fulfilled in Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. This focus on incarnation that we do right before, right before Christmas at the end of Advent is actually a really good way to wrap up the Advent season. Because we don't want to let the anticipation of his coming Obscure the fact that he's actually already here with us and in us. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.